The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. There was a wall. It did not look important. It was built of uncut rocks, roughly mortared. An adult could look right over it, and even a child could climb it. Where it crossed the roadway, instead of having a gate, it degenerated into mere geometry, a line, an idea of boundary. But the idea was real. It was important. For seven generations, there had been nothing in the world more important than that wall. Like all walls, it was ambiguous, two-faced. What was inside it and what was outside it depended upon which side of it you were on. Looked at from one side, the wall enclosed a barren 60-acre field called the Port of Anaris. On the field, there were a couple of large gantry cranes, a rocket pad, three warehouses, a truck garage and a dormitory. The dormitory looked durable, grimy and mournful. It had no gardens, no children. Plainly nobody lived there or was ever meant to stay there long. It was in fact a quarantine. The walls shut in not only the landing field but also the ships that came down out of space and the men that came on the ships and the world they came from and the rest of the universe. It enclosed the universe, leaving Anaris outside free. Looked at from the other side, the wall enclosed Anaris. The whole planet was inside it. A great prison camp, cut off from other worlds and other men, in quarantine. A number of people were coming along the road towards the landing field, or standing around where the road cut through the wall. People often came out from the nearby city of Abney in hopes of seeing a spaceship, or simply to see the wall. After all, it was the only boundary wall on their world. Nowhere else could they see a sign that said no trespassing. Adolescents particularly were drawn to it. They came up to the wall. They sat on it. There might be a gang to watch, offloading crates from track trucks at the warehouses. There might even be a freighter on the pad. Freighters came down only eight times a year, unannounced, except two syndics actually working at the port. So when the spectators were lucky enough to see one, they were excited at first. But there they sat, and there it sat, a squat black tower in a mess of movable cranes, away off across the field. And then a woman came over from one of the warehouse crews and said, We're shutting down for today, brothers. She was wearing the defense armband, a sight almost as rare as a spaceship. That was a bit of a thrill. But though her tone was mild, it was final. She was the foreman of this gang, and if provoked, would be backed up by her syndics. And anyhow, there wasn't anything to see. The aliens, the offholders, stayed hiding in their ship. No show. It was a dull show for the defense crew, too. Sometimes the foreman wished that somebody would just try to cross the wall, an alien crewman jumping the ship, or a kid from Abney trying to sneak in for a closer look at the freighter. But it never happened. Nothing ever happened. When something did happen, she wasn't ready for it. The captain of the freighter, mindful, said to her, Is that mob after my ship? The foreman looked and saw that in fact there was a real crowd around the gate, a hundred or more people. They were standing around, just standing, the way people had stood at produce train stations during the famine. It gave the foreman a scare. No, they are... Uh, Protest, she said in her slow and limited ionic. Protest the, ah, you know, passenger? 
You mean they're after this bastard we're supposed to take. Are they going to try to stop him or us? The word bastard, untranslatable in the foreman's language, meant nothing to her except some kind of foreign term for her people. But she had never liked the sound of it, or the captain's tone, or the captain. Can you look after you? she asked briefly. Hell yes. You just get the rest of this cargo unloaded. Quick. And get this passenger bastard on board. No mob of Audis is about to give us any trouble. He patted the thing he wore on his belt, a metal object like a deformed penis, and looked patronizingly at the unarmed women. She gave the phallic object, which she knew was a weapon, a cold glance. Ship will be loaded by 14 hours, she said. Keep the crew on board safe. Lift off at 14 hours 40. If you need help, leave message on tape at ground control. She strode off before the captain could one-up her. Anger made her more forceful with her crew and the crowd. Clear the road there, she ordered as she neared the wall. Trucks are coming through. Somebody's gonna get hurt. Clear aside. The men and women in the crowd argued with her and with one another. They kept crossing the road and some came inside the wall. Yet they did more or less clear the way. If the foreman had no experience in bossing a mob, they had no experience in being one. Members of a community, not elements of a collectivity. They were not moved by mass feeling. There were as many emotions there as there were people. And they did not expect comments to be arbitrary, so they had no practice in disobeying them. Their inexperience saved the passenger's life. Some of them had come there to kill a traitor. Others had come to prevent him from leaving, or to yell insults at him, or just look at him. And all these others obstructed the sheer brief path of the assassins. None of them had firearms, though a couple had knives. Assault to them meant bodily assault. They wanted to take the traitor into their own hands. They expected him to come guarded in a vehicle. While they were trying to inspect a goods truck and, argued, and arguing with its outraged driver, the man they wanted came walking up the road, alone. When they recognized him, he was already halfway across the field, with five defense syndics following him. Those who wanted to kill him resorted to pursuit, too late, and to rock-throwing, not quite too late. They barely winged the man they wanted, just as he got to the ship, but a two-pound flint caught one of the defense crew on the side of the head and killed him on the spot. The hatches of the ship closed. The defense crew turned back, carrying their dead companion. They made no effort to stop the leaders of the crowd who came racing towards the ship, though the foremen, white with shock and rage, cursed them to hell as they ran past, and they swerved to avoid her. Once at the ship, the vanguard of the crowd scattered and stood irresolute. The silence of the ship, the abrupt movements of the huge skeleton countries, the strange burnt look of the ground, and the absence of anything in human skill disoriented them. A blast of steam or gas from something connected with the ship made some of them start. They looked up uneasily at the rockets, vast black tunnels overhead. A siren whooped in warning far across the field. First one person and then another started back towards the gate. Nobody stopped them. Within ten minutes, the field was clear. The crowd scattered out along the road to Abene. Nothing appeared to have happened, after all. Inside the mindful, a great deal was happening. Since ground control had pushed launch time up, all routines had to be rushed through in double time. The captain had ordered that the passenger be strapped down and locked in. 
in the crew lounge along with the doctor to get them out from underfoot. There was a screen in there. They could watch the liftoff if they liked. The passenger watched. He saw the field and the wall around the field and far outside the wall, the distant slopes of the Ney Terrace, speckled with scrub hollum and sparse silvery moonthorn. All this suddenly rushed dazzling down the screen. The passenger felt his head pressed back against the padded rest. It was like a dentist's examination. The head pressed back, the jaw forced open. He could not get his breath. He felt sick. He felt his bowels loosen with fear. His old body cried out to the enormous forces that had taken hold of him. Not now, not yet. Wait. His eyes saved him. What they insisted on seeing and reporting to him took him out of the autism of terror. For on the screen now there was a strange sight, a great pallid plain of stone. It was the desert seen from the mountains above Grand Valley. How had he got back to Grand Valley? He tried to tell himself that he was in an airship. No, in a spaceship. The edge of the plain flashed with the brightness of light on water. Light across a distant sea. There was no water in those deserts. What was he seeing then? The stone plain was no longer plain, but hollow, like a huge bowl full of sunlight. As he watched in wonder, it grew shallower, spilling out its light. All at once a line broke across it, abstract, geometric, the perfect section of a circle. Beyond that arc was blackness. This blackness reversed the whole picture, made it negative, the real, stone part of it was no longer concave and full of light, but convex, reflecting, rejecting light. It was not a plane or a bowl, but a sphere, a ball of white stone falling down in blackness, falling away. It was his world. I don't understand, he said aloud. Someone answered him. For a while he failed to comprehend that the person standing by his chair was speaking to him, answering him for he no longer understood what an answer is. He was clearly aware of only one thing, his total isolation. The world had fallen out from under him, and he was left alone. He had always feared that this would happen, more than he had ever feared death. To die is to lose the self and rejoin the rest. He had kept himself and lost the rest. He was able, at last, to look up at the man standing beside him, it was a stranger, of course. From now on, there would only be strangers. He was speaking in a foreign language, Iotic. The words made sense. All the little things made sense, only the whole thing did not. The man was saying something about the straps that held him into the chair. He fumbled at them. The chair sprung upright, and he nearly fell out of it, being giddy and off balance. The man kept asking if someone had been hurt. Who was he talking about? Is he sure he didn't get hurt? The polite form of direct address in Iotic wasn't the third person. The man meant him, himself. He did not know why he should have been hurt. The man kept saying something about throwing rocks. But the rock will never hit, he thought. He looked back at the screen for the rock, the white stone falling down in darkness, but the screen had gone blank. I am well, he said at last, at random. It did not appease the man. Please come with me. I am a doctor. I am well. Please come with me, Dr. Shevek. You are a doctor, Shevek said after a pause. I am not. I am called Shevek. The doctor, a short, fair, bald man, grimaced with anxiety. You should be in your cabin, sir. Danger of infection. 
You weren't to be in contact with anybody but me. I've been through two weeks of disinfection for nothing. God damn that captain. Please come with me, sir. I'll be held responsible. Shevik perceived that the little man was upset. He felt no compunction, no sympathy. But even when he was in absolute solitude, one law held. The one law he had ever acknowledged. All right, he said and stood up. He still felt dizzy and his right shoulder hurt. He knew the ship must be moving, but there was no sense of motion. There was only a silence, an awful, utter silence just outside the walls. The doctor led him through silent metal corridors through a room. It was a very small room with seamed blank walls. It repelled Shevik, reminding him of a place he did not want to remember. He stopped in the doorway, but the doctor urged and pleaded and he went on in. He sat down on the shelf-like bed, still feeling lightheaded and lethargic, and watched the doctor incuriously. He felt he ought to be curious. This man was the first Urasti he had ever seen. But he was too tired. He could have lain back and gone straight to sleep. He had been up all night before, going through his papers. Three days ago he had seen Takwar and the children off to peace and plenty. And ever since then, he had been busy running out to the radio tower to exchange last-minute messages with people on Uras, discussing plans and possibilities with Bedap and the others. All through those hurried days, ever since Takwar left, he had felt not that he was doing all the things he did, but that they were doing him. He had been in other people's hands. His own will had not acted. It had no need to act. It was his own will that had started it all that had created this moment and these walls about him now. How long ago? Years. Five years ago, in the silence of night in Chakar in the mountains, where he had said to Thakwar, I will go to Abene and unbuild walls. But then, even long before, in the dust, in the years of famine and despair, when he had promised himself that he would never act again but by his own free choice. And following that promise, he had brought himself here, to this moment without time, this place without an earth, this little room, this prison. The doctor had examined his bruised shoulder. The bruise puzzled Shivak. He had been too tense and hurried to realize what was going on at the landing field and had never felt the rock strike him. Now he turned to M.M. holding a hypodermic needle. I do not want that, Shivak said. His, his spoken iotic was slow and, as he knew from the radio exchanges, badly pronounced, but it was grammatical enough. He had more difficulty understanding than speaking. This is measles vaccine, said the doctor, professionally deaf. No, Shevek said. The doctor chewed his lip for a moment and said, Do you know what measles is, sir? No. A disease, contagious, often severe in adults. You don't have it on an iris. Prophylactic measures keep it out when the planet was settled. It's common on Uras. It could kill you. So could a dozen other common viral infections. You have no resistance. Are you right-handed, sir? Shevek automatically showed his hat, head. With the grace of a prestidigitator, the doctor slid the needle into his right arm. Shevek submitted to this and other injections in silence. He had no right to suspicion or protest. He had yielded himself up to these people. He had given up his birthright of decision. It was gone, fallen away from him along with his world, the world of the promise, the barren stone. 
the doctor spoke again, but he did not listen. For hours or days he existed in a vacancy, a dry and wretched void without past or future. The walls stood tight about him. Outside there was the silence. His arms and buttocks ached from injections. He ran a fever that never quite heightened to delirium, but left him in a limbo between reason and unreason. No man's land. Time did not pass. There was no time. He was time. He only. He was the river, the arrow, the stone. But he did not move. The throne rock hung still at midpoint. There was no day or night. Sometimes the doctor switched the light off or on. There was a clock set in the wall by the bed. Its pointer moved from one to another of the twenty figures of the dial. Meaningless. He woke after long, deep sleep, and since he was facing the clock, studied it sleepily. Its pointer stood at a little after fifteen, which, if the dial was read from midnight like the twenty-four hour unarresty clock, should mean it was mid-afternoon. But how could it be mid-afternoon in space between two worlds? Well, the ship would keep its own time, after all. Figuring all of this out heartened him immensely. He sat up and did not feel giddy. He got out of bed and tested his balance. Satisfactory, though he felt that the soles of his feet were not quite firmly in contact with the floor. The ship's gravity field must be rather weak. He did not much like the feeling. What he needed was steadiness, solidity, a firm fact. In search of these, he began methodically to investigate the little room. The blank walls were full of surprises, all ready to reveal themselves at a touch on the panel. Washstand, shitstool, mirror, desk, chair, closet, shelves. There were several completely mysterious electrical devices connected with the washstand, and the water valve did not cut off when you released the faucet, but kept pouring out of it until shut off. A sign, Shevek thought, either of great faith in human nature or of great quantities of hot water. Assuming the latter, he washed all over, and finding no towel, tried himself with one of the mysterious devices, which emitted a pleasant ticking blast of warm air. Not finding his own clothes, he put back on those he found himself wearing when he woke up, loose tied trousers and a shapeless tunic, both bright yellow with small blue spots. He looked at himself in the mirror. He thought the effect unfortunate. Was this how they dressed on Nuras? He searched in vain for a comb, made do by braiding back his hair, and so groomed, made to leave the room. He could not. The door was locked. Shevek's first incredulity turned to rage, a kind of rage, a blind will to violence, which he had never felt before in his life. He wrenched at the immovable door handle, slammed his hands against the slick metal of the door, then turned and jabbed the call button, which the doctor had told him at to use at need. Nothing happened. There were a lot of other little numbered buttons of different colours on the intercom panel. He hit his hand across a whole lot of them. The wall speaker began to babble. Who the hell, yes, coming right away, out clear. What, from 22? Shevek drowned them all out, unlocked the door. The door slid open. The doctor looked in. At the sight of his bald, anxious, yellowish face, Shevek's wrath cooled and retreated into an inward darkness. He said the door was locked. I'm, doctors, doc I'm sorry, Dr. Shevek. A precaution, contagion, keeping the others out. To lock out, to lock in, the same act, Shevek said, looking down at the doctor with light, remote eyes. Safety. Safety? Must I be kept in a box? 
the officer's lounge, the doctor offered hurriedly, appeasingly. Are you hungry, sir? Perhaps you'd like to get dressed and we'll go to the lounge. Shavak looked at the doctor's clothing. Tight blue trousers tucked into boots that looked as smooth and fine as cloth themselves. A violet tunic opened down the front and reclosed with silver frogs, and under that, showing only at neck and wrists, a knit shirt of dazzling white. I'm not dressed? Shevek inquired at last. Oh, pajamas will do, by all means. No formalities on a freighter. Pajamas? What you're wearing? Sleeping clothes. Clothes to wear while sleeping? Yes. Shevek blinked. He made no comment, he asked. Where are the clothes I wore? Your clothes? I had them cleaned. Sterilization. I hope you don't mind, sir. He investigated a wall panel Shevek had not discovered and brought out a packet wrapped in pale green paper. He unwrapped Shevek's old suit, which looked very clean and somewhat reduced in size, padded up the green paper, activated another panel, tossed the paper into the bin that opened, and smiled uncertainly. There you are, Dr. Shevek. What happens to the paper? The paper? The green paper. Oh, I put it in the trash. Trash? The disposal. It gets burnt up. You burn paper? Perhaps it just gets dropped out into space. I don't know. I'm no, I'm no space medic, Dr. Shevek. I was given the honor of attending you because of my experience with other visitors from Offworld. The ambassadors from Terra and from Hein. I run the decontamination and habituation procedure for all aliens arriving at AEO. Not that you're exactly an alien in the same sense, of course. He looked, timid, he looked timidly at Shevek, who could not follow all he said, but did discern the anxious, diffident, well-meaning nature beneath the words. No, Shevek assured him. Maybe I have the same grandmother as you, 200 years ago, on Uras. He was putting on his old clothes, and as he pulled the shirt over his head, he saw the doctor stuff the blue and yellow sleeping clothes into the trash bin. Shivek paused, the collar still over his nose. He emerged fully, knelt, and opened the bin. It was empty. The clothes are burnt? Oh, those cheap pyjamas, service issue. Wear them and throw them away. It costs less than cleaning. It costs less, Shevek repeated meditatively. He said the words a paleontologist looks at the fossil that dates a whole stratum. I'm afraid your luggage must have got lost in that final rush for the ship. I hope there was nothing important in it. I brought nothing, Shevek said. Though his suit had been bleached almost to white and had shrunk a bit, it still fit, and the harsh familiar touch of Holland fibre cloth was pleasant. He felt like himself again. He sat down on the bed facing the doctor and said, You know, I know you don't take things as we do. In your world, in Uras, one must buy things. I come to your world. I have no money. I cannot buy, therefore I should bring. But how much can I bring? Clothing? Yes. I might bring two suits. But food? How can I bring food enough? I cannot bring. I cannot buy. If I am to be kept alive, you must give it to me. I am an anarasti. I make the urasti behave like anarasti. To give, not to sell, if you like. Of course, it is not necessary to keep me alive. I am the beggar man, you see. <laughs> Oh, not at all, sir. No, no, you are a very honoured guest. 
Please don't judge us by the crew of this ship. They are very ignorant, limited men. You have no idea of the welcome you'll get on Oras. After all, you are world famous, a galactically famous scientist, and our first visitor from Anaris. I assure you, things will be very different when we come into Pearfield. I do not doubt that they will be different, Shevek said. The moon run normally took four and days, half days each way, but this time five days of habituation time for the passenger was added to the return trip. Shevek and Dr. Kimo spent them in vaccinations and conversations. The captain of the Mindful spent them in maintaining orbit around Uras and swearing. When he had to speak to Shevek, he did so with uneasy disrespect. The doctor, who was ready to explain everything, had his analysis ready. He's used to looking on all foreigners as inferior, as less than fully human. The creation of pseudo-species, Odo called it. Yes, I thought that perhaps on Uras people no longer thought that way, since you have so many languages and nations, and even visitors from other solar systems. Very few of those, since interstellar travel is so closely and so slow. Perhaps it won't always be so, Dr. Kimo added evidently with an intent to flatter Shevek or to draw him out, which Shevek ignored. The second officer, he said, seems to be afraid of me. Oh, with him it's religious bigotry. He's a strict interpretation epiphanist, recites the primes every night, a totally rigid mind. So he sees me, how? As a dangerous atheist. An atheist? Why? Why? Because you're Odonian, from Araris, there is no religion on Anaris. No religion? Are we stones on Anaris? I mean, established religion. Churches, creeds. Kimo flustered easily. He had the physician's brisk self-assurance, but Shevek continually upset it. All his explanations ended up, after two or three of Shevek's questions, in floundering. Each took for granted certain relationships that the other could not even see. For instance, this curious matter of superiority and inferiority. Shevik knew that the concept of superiority, of relative height, was important to the Urasti. They often used the word higher as a synonym for better in their writings, where an Anaristi would use more central. But what did being higher have to do with being foreign? It was one puzzle among hundreds. I see, he said now, another puzzle coming clear. You admit no religion outside the churches, just as you admit no morality outside the laws. You know, I had not ever understood that in all my reading of Urasti books. Well, these days any enlightened person would admit. The vocabulary makes it difficult, Shevek said, pursuing his discovery. In Pravik, the word religion is seldom. No, what you do say, rare, not often used. Of course, it is one of the categories, the fourth mode. Few people learn to practice all the modes, but the modes are built of the natural capacities of the mind. You could not seriously believe that we had no religious capacity, that we could do physics while we are cut off from the profoundest relationship man has with the cosmos? Oh no, not at all. That would be to make a pseudo-species of us indeed. Educated men certainly would understand that. These officers are ignorant. But is it only bigots, then, who are allowed to go out, go, out, go out into the cosmos? All their conversations were like this, exhausting to the doctor and unsatisfying to Shevek, yet intensely interesting to both. 
they were Shevik's only means of exploring the new world that awaited him. The ship itself and Kimo's mind were his microcosm. There were no books about the mindful, and the officers avoided Shevik, and the crewmen were kept strictly out of the way. As for the doctor's mind, though intelligent and certainly well-meaning, it was a jumble of intellectual artifacts even more confusing than all the gadgets, appliances and conveniences that filled the ship. These latter Shevik found entertaining. Everything was so lavish, stylish and inventive. But the furniture of Kimo's intellect he did not find so comfortable. Kimo's ideas never seemed to be able to go in a straight line. They had to walk around this and avoid that, and then they ended up smack against a wall. There were walls around all his thoughts, and he seemed utterly unaware of them, though he was perpetually hiding behind them. Only once did Shevek see them breached in all their days of conversation between the wolves. He had asked why there were no women on the ship, and Kimo had replied that running a space freighter was not women's work. History courses and his knowledge of Odo's writings gave Shevek a context in which to understand this tautological answer, and he said no more. But the doctor asked a question in return, a question about Anaris. Is it true, Dr. Shevek, that women in your society are treated exactly like men? That would be a waste of good equipment, said Shevek with a laugh, and then a second laugh as the full ridiculousness of the idea grew upon him. The doctor hesitated, evidently picking his way around one of the obstacles in his mind, then looked flustered and then and said, Oh no, I didn't mean sexually, obviously, you... They... I meant in the matter of their social status. Status is the same as class? Kimo tried to explain status, failed, and went back to the first topic. Is there really no distinction between men's work and women's work? Well, no. It seems a very mechanical basis for the division of labor, doesn't it? A person chooses work according to interest, talent, strength. What has the sex to do with that? Men are physically stronger, the doctor asserted with professional finality. Yes, often, and larger. But what does that matter when we have machines? And even when we don't have machines, when we must dig, dig with the shovel or carry on the back, then maybe men work faster, the big ones, but the women work longer. Often I wished I was as tough as a woman. Kimo stared at him, shocked out of politeness. But the loss of, of everything feminine, of delicacy, and the loss of masculine self-respect. You can't pretend, surely, in your work, that women are your equals. In physics, in mathematics, in the intellect, you can't pretend to lower yourself constantly to their level. Shevek sat in the cushioned, comfortable chair and looked out the officer's lounge. On the view screen, the brilliant cove, Uras, hung still against backspace, like a blue-green opal. That lovely sight, and the lounge had become familiar to Shevik these last days. But now the bright colours, the curvilinear chairs, the high hidden lighting, the game tables and television screens and soft carpeting, all of it seemed so alien as it had the first time he saw it. I don't think I pretend very much, Kimo, he said. Of course, I have known highly intelligent women, women who could think just like a man, the doctor said hurriedly aware that he had almost been shouting, that he had, Shevik thought, been pounding his hands against the locked door and shouting. Shevik turned the conversation, but he went on thinking about it. 
this matter of superiority and the inferiority must be a central one in Urasti's social life. If to respect himself, Kimo had to consider half the human race as inferior to him. How then did women manage to respect themselves? Did they consider men inferior? And how did it all affect their sex lives? He knew from Odo's writings that 200 years ago, the main Urasti sexual institutions had been marriage, a partnership authorized and enforced by legal and economic sanctions and prostitution, which seemed merely to be a wider term, copulation in the economic mode. Odo had condemned them both, and yet Odo had been married. And anyhow, the institutions might have changed greatly in 200 years. If he was going to live on Uras and with the Urasti, he had better find out. It was strange that even sex, the source of so much solace, delight and joy for so many years, could overnight become an unknown territory where he must tread carefully and know his ignorance. Yet it was so. He was warned not only by Kemo's queer burst of scorn and anger, but by a previous vague impression which that episode brought into focus. When first aboard the ship, in those long hours of fever and despair, he had been distracted, sometimes pleased and sometimes irritated by a grossly simple sensation, the softness of the bed. Though only a bunk, the mattress gave under his weight with caressing suppleness. It yielded to him, yielded so insistently that he was still always conscious of it when falling asleep. Both the pleasure and the irritation of it produced in him were decidedly erotic. There was also the hot air nozzle towel device, the same kind of effect, a tickling. And the design of the furniture in the officer's lounge, the smooth plastic curves into which stubborn wood and steel had been forced, the smoothness and delicacy of surfaces and textures, were these not also faintly, perversely erotic? He knew himself well enough to be sure that a few days without Takwer, even under great stress, should not get him so worked up that he felt a woman in every tabletop, not unless the woman was really there. Were Urasti cabin makers all celibate? He gave it up. He would find out soon enough on Uras. Just before they strapped in for descent, the doctor came to his cabin to check the progress of the various immunizations, the last of which, a plague inoculation, had made Shevek sick and groggy. Kimo gave him a new pill. That'll pep you up for landing, he said. Stoic. Shevek swallowed the thing. The doctor fussed with his medical kit and suddenly began to speak very fast. Dr. Shevek, I don't expect I'll be allowed to attend you again, though perhaps. But if not, I wanted to tell you that it, that I, it has been a great privilege for me. Not because, but because I have come to respect, to appreciate that simply as a human being, your kindness, real kindness. No more adequate response occurring to Shevek through his headache. He reached out and took Kimo's hand, saying, Then let's meet again, brother. Kimo gave his hand a nervous shake, Urasti style, and hurried out. After he was gone, Shevak realized he had spoken to him in Pravik, called him Amar, brother, in a language Kimo did not understand. The wall speaker was blatting orders. Strapped into a bunk, Shevak listened, feeling hazy and detached. The sensations of entry thickened the haze. He was conscious of little but a profound hope he would not have to vomit. He did not know they had landed till Kimo came hurrying in again and rushed him out to the officer's lounge. The view screen where Uras had hung cloud-coiled and luminous so, so long was blank. The room was full of people. Where had they all come from? He was surprised and pleased by his ability to stand up, 
walk and shake hands. He concentrated on that much and let meaning pass him by. Voices, smiles, hands, words, names, his name again and again, Dr. Shevek, Dr. Shevek. Now he and all the strangers around him were going down a covered ramp, all the voices very loud, words echoing off the walls. The clatter of voices thinned. A strange air touched his face. He looked up, and as he stepped off the ramp onto the level ground, he stumbled and nearly fell. He thought of death in that gap between the beginning of a step and its completion, and at the end of the step, he stood on a new earth. A broad grey evening was around him. Blue lights, mist blurred, burned far away across a foggy field. The air on his face and hands, in his nostrils and throat and lungs, was cool, damp, many-scented, mild. It was not strange. It was the air of the world from which his race had come. It was the air of home. Someone had taken his arm when he stumbled. Lights flashed on him. Photographers were filming the scene for the news. The first man from the moon. A tall, frail figure in a crowd of dignitaries and professors and security agents. The fine, shaggy head held very erect, so that the photographers could catch every feature. As if he were trying to look above the floodlights into the sky. The broad sky of fog that hid the stars, the moon, all other worlds. Journalists tried to crowd through the ring of policemen. Will you give us a statement, Dr. Shevek, in this historic moment? They were forced back again at once. The men around him urged him forward. He was borne off to the waiting limousine, eminently photographable to the last because of his height, his long hair and the strange look of grief and recognition on his face. The towers of the city went up into mist, great ladders of blurred light, trains passed overhead, bright shrieking streaks. Massive walls of stone and glass fronted the streets above the race of cars and trolleys. Stone, steel, glass, electric light, no faces. This is neo Essia, Dr. Shevik, but it was decided it would be better to keep you out of the city crowds just at first. We're going straight on to the university. There were five men with him in the dark, softly padded body of the car. They pointed out landmarks, but in the fog he could not tell which great, vague, fleeting building was the High Court and which was the National Museum, which was the Directorate and which was the Senate. They crossed a river or estuary, the million lights of Neo-Essia, fog-diffused, trembled on dark water behind them. The road darkened, the fog thickened, the driver slowed the vehicle's pace. Its lights shone on the mist ahead as if on a wall that kept retreating before them. Shevik sat leaning forward a little, gazing out. His eyes were not focused, nor was his mind. He looked aloof and grave, and the other man talked quietly, respecting his silence. What was the thicker darkness that flowed along endlessly by the road? Trees? Could they have been driving ever since they left the city among trees? The iotic word came to his mind, forest. They would not come out suddenly into the desert. The trees went on and on, on, to, on the next hillside and the next and the next, standing in the sweet chill of the fog, endless, a, fog, a forest all over the world, a still striving interplay of lives, a dark moment of leaves in the night. Then as Shevek sat marvelling as the car came up out of the fog of the river valley into clearer air, there looked at him from the darkness under the roadside foliage for one instant, a face. 
It was not like any human face. It was as long as his arm and ghastly white. Breath jetted in vapor from what must be its nostrils, and terrible, unmistakable, there was an eye. A large, dark eye, mournful, perhaps cynical, gone in the flash of the car's lights. What was that? Donkey, wasn't it? An animal? Yes, an animal. By God, that's right. You have no large animals on an earth, have you? A donkey's a kind of horse, said another of the men, and another in a firm but elderly voice. That was a horse. Donkeys don't come that size. They wanted to talk with him, but Shevik was not listening again. He was thinking of Takwer. He wondered what was that deep, dry, dark gaze out of the darkness would have meant to Takwer. She had always known that all lives are in common, rejoicing in her kinship to the fish in the tanks of her laboratories, seeking the experience of existence outside the human boundary. Takwer would have known how to look back at, at that eye in the darkness under the trees. There's Ayu Uin ahead. There's quite a crowd waiting to meet you, Dr. Shevik. The president and several directors and the chancellor, of course. All kinds of bigwigs. But if you're tired, we'll get the am amenities over as soon as possible. The amenities lasted several hours. He never could remember them clearly afterward. He was propelled from the small dark box of the car into a huge bright box full of people, hundreds of people, under a golden ceiling hung with crystal lights. He was introduced to all the people. They were all shorter than he was and bald. The few women there were bald even on their heads. He realized at last that they must, have, must shave off all their hair, the very fine, soft, short body hair of his race and the head hair as well. But they replaced it with marvellous clothing, gorgeous in cut and colour, the women in full gowns that swept the floor, their breasts bare, their wrists and necks and heads adorned with jewellery and lace and gauze, the men in trousers and coats or tunics of red, blue, violet, gold, green, with slashed sleeves and cascades of lace, or long gowns of crimson or dark green or black that parted at the knee to show the white stockings, silver gartered. Another iotic word floated into Shevik's head, one he had never had to ref the referent for, though he liked the sound of it. Splendor. These people had splendor. Speeches were made. The president of the Senate of the Nation of AIO, a man with strange, cold eyes, proposed a toast to the new era of brotherhood between the twin planets and to the harbinger of that new era, a distinguished and most welcome guest, Dr. Shevik of Anaris. The Chancellor of the University talked to him charmingly. The first director of the nation talked to him seriously. He was introduced to ambassadors, astronauts, physicists, politicians, dozens of people, all of whom had long titles and honorifics, both before and after their names. And they talked to him and he answered them, but he had no memory later of what anyone had said, least of all himself. Very late at night, he found himself with a small group of men walking in the warm rain across a large park or square. There was a springy feeling of live grass underfoot. He recognized it from having walked in the Triangle Park in Abenay. That vivid memory and the cool vast touch of the night wind awakened him. His soul came out of hiding. His escorts took him into a building and to a room which, they explained, was his it was large, about 10 metres long, and evidently a common room, as there were no divisions or sleeping platforms. The three men still with him must be his roommates. It was a very beautiful common room, 
with one whole ball of series of windows, each divided by a slender column that rose tree-like to form a double arc at the top. The floor was carpeted with crimson, and at the far end of the room a fire burned in an open heat. Shavik crossed the room and stood in front of the fire. He had never seen wood burnt for warmth, but he was beyond wonder. He held out his hands to the pleasant heat and sat down on a seat of polished marble by the hearth. The youngest of the men who had come with him sat down across the hearth from him. The other two were still talking. They were talking physics, but Shevik did not try to follow what they said. The young man spoke quietly. I wonder how you must feel, Dr. Shevik. Shevik stretched out his legs and leaned forward to catch the warmth of the fire on his face. I feel heavy. Heavy? Perhaps the gravity, or I'm tired. He looked at the other man, but through the hearth glow the face was not clear, only the glint of a gold chain and the deep jewel red of the robe. I don't know your name. Sayo Pei. Oh, Pei, yes. I know your articles on paradox. He spoke heavily, dreamily. There'll be a bar here. Senior faculty rooms always have a liquor cabinet. Would you care for something to drink? Water, yes. The young man reappeared with a glass of water as the other two came down, came to join them at the hearth. Shevik drank off the water thirstily and sat looking down at the glass in his hand, a fragile, finely shaped piece that caught the gleam of the fire on its rim of gold. He was aware of three men, of their attitudes as they sat or stood near him, protective, respectful, proprietary. He looked up at them, one face after the other. They all looked at him, expectant. Well, you have me, he said. He smiled. You have your anarchist. What are you going to do with him?